0: You'll turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament. Right before Matthew, we're going to read our text, Malachi 3, and the first five, five verses of that chapter. Malachi 3, 1 through 5. Let's stand together as we read these words from the Word of God to The nation of Israel and to us here today. Malachi 3. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord. As in the days of old, as in the former years, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner.
1: Thank you, worship team sermon text this morning is from Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 16 and 17. You can find it in the pew Bible in front of you on page 939. I'll give you a second to find it and then we'll read it together. Let's stand, shall we? Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You may take your seats and take a moment to reflect on God's Word. If you'll keep your Bible open to Romans chapter 1, there we'll flip around a little bit through the book of Romans, but we're mainly just going to focus in on these two critical verses. Now, the Bible, the book that we we preach every week, this book that we've been going through throughout the course of this year, looking kind of uh, chronologically at each book uh, in the history of uh, God's redemption. Of his people, the Bible is the single most important book in human history. I mean, just purely from a human perspective, you can't argue its impact. I mean, the Bible has toppled kingdoms, it's restored numberless lives from the pit of despair, and it has totally reorganized the moral and the philosophical thought of first the Western world, and now really the entire world, starting mainly in our time with the Southern Hemisphere. And within this holy book, this book that we look at each week, there is one little book, which you could say has had more impact than any other, and that's the book we're going to look at today, the letter of Paul to the Romans. It's kind of the, the best of uh, of the rest of the Bible, and I'll explain why. At least to me it is. So in the 4th century, for instance, a brilliant teacher and philosopher named Augustine who had lived just this wild life was troubled and he was wrestling with the truthfulness of Christianity. So he was convinced he must read the Bible and he just kind of opened it up at random, which, by the way, if you're looking for a way to read your Bible, I don't recommend just opening it at random and just kind of letting it fall open. Typically, when I've done that... It seems like God always wants me to read something right in the middle of my Bible, like in the Psalms or something. So it's, maybe that's the more spiritual place to end up. But I think that's really just that's the middle of the Bible, so that's where it opens up. But for Augustine, it didn't open up right in the middle of the Bible. It opened up to the book of Romans. And right there on the page was Romans, the 13th chapter. And after he reads a verse there, he said, As the sentence I read ended... It was like a light of security infused into my heart. All the gloom of doubt vanished away. And that man, Augustine, became the greatest leader in the early church since St. Paul. Second example, Martin Luther, who you may have heard of. He led the Protestant Reformation, which turned the whole world upside down. He he wasn't a a wild kind of party guy like Augustine, uh, but he was a religious monk. But it seemed that the harder that he worked for God, the more he found himself hating God. And he wrote, I have no love for the holy and just God who punishes sinners. I was filled with secret anger against him. Maybe you feel that way. I hated him because he demanded obedience from us who were already ruined by original sin and frightened by the miseries of life. That's how Luther felt about the God that he was uh, training to serve. As a monk. But then he says, When by the Spirit of God I understood these words, the words that we're going to talk about this morning, Romans 1, 16 and 17. When I understood these words, I felt born again like a new man. In very truth, the language of St. Paul was to me the true gate of paradise. Third example, not that you need one. John Wesley. He came to faith from a crazy life, from a life of uh, religious guilt and exertion and just exhaustion, not by reading the book of Romans, but by hearing a sermon from Martin Luther on the book of Romans. That's how powerful this book is. So, So you might ask, what's made this book so transformative? What's so special about this one letter and why, of all the New Testament letters, why pick this one book as our example? Uh, why well, I make this our one stop on our tour through the Bible in the New Testament letters and I'll tell you the reason this book has been so used by God and the reason why we're studying it this morning is that in this letter to the church in Rome the apostle Paul lays out the most systematic, the most clear, the most comprehensive statement of the message of Christianity found in the whole Bible. This book shows the gospel, the thing we sing about the thing we preach about, the thing that we hope in. It shows it more clearly and concert, comprehensively and systematically than probably any other place in the whole Bible. So let's look at it. Uh, now when Paul, uh, our Paul, the uh, the Pastor Paul, when he took us through the book of Acts last Sunday, we heard the story of the Apostle Paul's conversion. He was a member uh, and leader in the early church in Antioch, this missionary sending station church, and his missionary journey spanned about 25 years around the Mediterranean Sea. So he would fly kind of from Antioch, um, and then he'd, he'd fly, uh, fly, uh, take a boat, around, <laughs> sail around the Mediterranean Sea, and he'd stop and he'd plant churches. And the book of Acts ends with Paul in a Roman uh, uh, prison, under house arrest, really. uh, Having survived shipwrecks, snake bites, stonings, beatings, imprisonments, flogging, assassination attempts. And he's still preaching and he's still writing letters. And when he's under arrest in Rome, Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and Titus. So that's the end of Paul's life. But where the book of Romans comes in is before Paul even gets to Rome. It's right around the time of Acts 21, right at the end of Paul's missionary journey. Now, he'd been traveling around the Mediterranean getting a collection of money to help with a famine in Jerusalem. So the church in Jerusalem needed help from the rest of the Roman Empire, all these other churches that had been planted with its preachers going out. And so Paul and Barnabas and these other guys that came and said, hey, would you please, we're taking up a collection for the church in Jerusalem. So they traveled around, and they're on their way back And when Paul writes this letter, he's stopping in Corinth. And and he's about to travel to Jerusalem. And then he has plans to go to Spain, where the gospel's never been before. All the way on the western edge of the Roman Empire. And on his way to Spain, Paul's going to stop in Rome. And he's going to visit this church in this crucial city. And so Paul has these plans uh, to stop in Rome... And since he's never met this church, by way of introduction, he decides to tell him, tell this church what he's all about. And he's going to say, I'm going to give you my sermon before I even get there. You guys know I'm a preacher. And this is obviously really important that Paul gets this message across to this church in Rome. He really wants them to know exactly what he's all about. And, And it's obvious that it's really important to him. Because instead of just saying, hey church in Rome, I'm stopping in maybe let me crash somewhere, maybe let me preach for a little bit, uh, which is what I would say, he decides to write them a 7,111 word letter, (laughs) laying out everything that he wants them to know, everything that he thinks is going to be encouraging and helpful. And he's saying to this church with this letter, do you want to know what moves me to do what I do? What's kept me alive? What's given me hope? And what's going to do the same for you? Church of Rome? Church of Christ Community in Wilmington, North Carolina? What's going to give you hope? What's going to give you power? What's going to give you strength? It's the gospel. That's our subject this morning. That's the subject of this letter. And especially these two verses. And in these verses we're going to see that the gospel is a message. The gospel is a message which reveals God's power, Christ's righteousness, and this revelation based in the power of God and the righteousness of Christ, it fuels Paul's boldness. So those are our three points. God's power, Christ's righteousness, and Paul's boldness. So let's start in verse 16 and see God's power. Here it is, verse 16. We'll read it again. Paul has just said how eager he is to come and preach the message of the gospel to him. It talked about all he's done for the gospel, all the people, all the churches that he's planted, all the the plans that he has. And he writes, verse 16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, take note, this gospel that Paul's excited about, this message he's been preaching, it doesn't just describe the power of God. It doesn't just uh, talk about the power of God. It's not just a story about a great and powerful God who's done mighty works, kind of like a a Greek myth or something like that, about about Hercules or Atlas or someone like that. No, the gospel isn't merely a story about a great and powerful God nor is Paul saying that the gospel is the source of power that you can kind of tap into. Like the, the message and the words of the gospel are this source of power that you can kind of tap into to use for yourself, like um, magic words. You know how people use this. You know, um, they'll recite some certain words. Sometimes people do it with the Bible. They'll pray certain words over and over and over again, hoping that these words will kind of unlock this power for them. So he's not saying that uh, it's about power. He's not just saying that it's, it's a, a means of getting power. Paul is saying that the gospel is itself the power. The message of the gospel is the power of God working in the world. When God's mighty saving strength moves out into the world, he accomplishes his purpose through this message, through the gospel. Now, if we don't stop and think about what he's saying, we might miss this. Because this is pretty radical, especially for us in the 21st century. Paul is saying that the most powerful force for change in the world is not politics, not a personality, not a new technology, and it's not even the power of the picture, of the image, which some people say is worth a thousand words. No, Paul is saying that the power of God... Resides in these words. Which is why, when God wanted to move in the lives of His people, He gave us a book. Because these words are power. The Bible says that God created the world out of nothing by speaking. And the Bible tells us also that God recreates the world, He recreates human beings by preaching. Now, if you don't believe me, just look back at the book of Acts. Just think about the Book of Acts. Remember all the, the highlights that Paul talked about, the kind of a Hall of Fame from the Book of Acts? All the mighty deeds of God when he was working in the church. What was it always connected to? Think about Pentecost. You had this great movement of the Spirit, and all these people are speaking in different languages, and what are they saying? They're talking about the gospel. God empowered them so they could speak words of the gospel. And then everyone hears it and they're like, what's going on? This message about Jesus, what's going on? Can someone explain it? So what happens? Peter gives a sermon. Peter stands up and talks about it in Acts chapter 2. He stands up and he preaches. He explains the gospel. And it says thousands were were added to their number that day. The movement of God is connected to the Word of God. That's the way it always is in Scripture. And the last thing I want to say about this is while God does indeed use human agents like Peter and Paul and other preachers throughout history to communicate this message, the Bible could not be more clear that the power does not reside in people. The power is in the Word. The personality of the messenger, if it's at all helpful to the message... And I hope my personality is not a distraction to you in the message. But if it's at all helpful, it's only because it's made useful by the power of God, which subdues it and uses it to accomplish His purposes. And and we have to be really clear. When the Bible talks about the gospel being God's power, it's also implying that it has to be God's power. Because we have no power in and of ourselves. That's what Paul's talking about in the whole first part of the book of Romans. From verse uh, one, uh, from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way from uh, chapter 3, verse 20. If you go back and read it today, you're going to see that it's all Paul talking about. The powerlessness of humanity to save themselves from the power of sin and death. We looked at it in the beginning when we, when we talked about the book of Genesis. In the very beginning you got Adam and Eve in the garden. They ate of the fruit. And the curse fell on them. They were powerless. They were enslaved to sin and death. And in Genesis 3.15, this is what God says. One day, there's going to be someone born of a woman that's going to come. And he is going to rescue you. He's going to defeat the power that holds all of humanity in bondage. And this one person look for him. That's the rescuer you need. That's the powerful one. The Bible is a story about this powerful rescue that God is working for people who can't rescue themselves. And Paul is saying, now, finally... Church in Rome, look, this is the gospel. God's saving power has been revealed. And it's bounding down through history towards people who can't help themselves. And this message was first delivered to the nation of Israel and it's hinted at and whispered at throughout the Old Testament and through the life and resurrection of Jesus. Now it's finally revealed in full color HD and everyone can see it and understand it and it's spreading across the globe. Now, because this is true, because it's true that this message is a message of words, and it's a message that has power, because this vital power of God moves into creation by the preaching and sharing of the gospel, this means that the most important thing happening in the world at any given time, is the preaching of the gospel. And I'm not just saying that to justify what I'm doing here. But this is what the Bible is saying. That this is how God moves into the world. This is how God saves souls. Not just for this life, but for eternity. It's through this book. It's through people getting up and explaining it to other people. So the question I have for you is, do you believe that? When you come to hear someone preach the Bible... I mean, do you listen? Do you pay attention? Do you, do you expect God to move? Do you expect God to work? When you open up this book that so many of us have in, the, in the West have access to, do you, do you take it for granted? Are you just checking your box? I went to church today. I heard a sermon. Or do you show up expecting God to do something? Expecting God to change something. If God's going to change your life, if He's going to change our community, if He's going to change this church, if He's going to do anything with us, it's going to happen through the preaching of this Word. That's why uh, this great preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he'd always say, "I I can't believe why some people would miss church. He's like, if I was going to miss anything else in my week, I would never miss church because if God's going to show up and do something... It's going to be in church. She's like, I'm going to get my butt to church. (laughs) Because I want to hear what God's doing. I want want Him to use me. I want Him to change me. I want Him to move me. I want Him to make something out of me. Do you believe that? Is the Word of God, the power of God, is it more important to you? Is it more powerful, more compelling to you than the outcome of a, a political race? Uh... Whoever won, uh, whoever wins the NBA championship, uh, whatever message is waiting for you when you turn on your phone, Paul is saying that there's nothing more vital, there's nothing more important, there's nothing more compelling, more interesting, more transformative than the preaching of this message. So before we move any further, remember that this gospel, it's not merely words, it's words with Power. It's the saving power of God. And that power does not come from any human personality or human wisdom or beauty or clever method of presentation. It comes straight from Almighty God Himself. Great. So, Sam, I understand that it's a powerful message. It's, it's, it's in a book. Great. I got that. So tell me already, what is this message that's so powerful? What's it about? What's Paul so excited about? Well, you see it in verse 17. So let's, let's turn to verse 17. And you see in verse 17 that the gospel isn't just about God's power. It isn't just God's power. The gospel reveals something. It reveals Christ's righteousness. that's our second point. Until you see what's in this verse, verse 17, you might understand God is powerful. You might understand that God is holy. You might even understand that God is just. That He judges sin. But I got to tell you, you're never going to be able to understand and experience God's love. You're never going to be able to experience His mercy. You might know His power, but you'll never be able to comprehend His goodness unless you see what this verse is saying. Now, that was the experience of Martin Luther. He understood God was holy, he understood God was righteous. Uh, he, He was like Isaiah when he comes before God and he's in God's presence. He comes to church and then all of a sudden he comes to worship and God shows up and he's confronted with the presence and the holiness of God and he hears the, he hears the heavenly host singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And what does Isaiah say? Woe is me. God's powerful. God's good. Woe is me. God's holy. I am unholy. I'm a man of unclean lips and I come from a people with unclean lips. That's the way Martin Luther felt. He was so aware of his sin. He had tried the way of religion to to, to clean the stain of sin by doing enough good deeds. That's what the people in the church told him to do. Just do more good works. Pray some more prayers. Do some more good deeds confess some more and and he tried and tried again he tried to do penance to say these prayers to to eat and drink the body and blood of Christ as they they said it was presented in the Mass he said maybe this will do it maybe this will cleanse me maybe this will cleanse me and Luther knows he's supposed to be a righteous man because of all the stuff that he's been doing but he knows he's not he knows his heart he knows that he still loves evil and so He's got a problem. He knows he loves evil. He knows he's unrighteous. And he knows that the only way to have life is to have it with God. Is to have friendship with God. And he understands, I'm God's enemy. I'm supposed to be righteous. God loves the righteous, but I'm unrighteous. So Luther is just racking his brain and, and trying to pillage the Bible, trying to figure out, How can an unrighteous man find a gracious God? How can he come before the holy presence of God and not get burned up like a snowball in the sun? And he came to this verse. Romans one seventeen. This is what it says. In it, in the gospel, this message, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, it may not hit you right away what this verse is talking about. And it didn't for Luther either, because when he heard the phrase, the righteousness of God, he was like, yeah, that's my problem. The righteousness of God is the problem, because the righteousness of God means he's going to judge me. But then Luther, examining the rest of the Bible, looking back, it was like a light dawned on him. That this verse, when it was talking about the righteousness of God, it's talking about a way of righteousness from God. Now, that's not just you know, my idea. I'm going to prove it to you from the Bible. But what Luther found out is that, that this verse wasn't just talking about the gospel displaying the righteousness of God, like it talked about how great he is and how holy he is and how, how just he is. It was describing a way of becoming righteous, a way of becoming right. Now, for us, the word righteousness, we, we think, it, I mean, it's not an attractive word to me, naturally. Because the word righteous, I think, if you're righteous, that sounds like you're kind of self-righteous, right? I mean, it sounds like you're just this high and mighty person. But in the Bible, righteousness really it just means a rightness. If you're righteous, there's nothing wrong with you. There's, there's, there's no way that we could possibly Bring a charge against you If you're righteous You're good from every direction Nobody's got a problem with you and there's, there's no stain There's no blemish Righteousness means perfection That doesn't sound like a bad thing So just, just think of righteousness as a rightness Alright So Martha, Martin Luther was going How can a wrong person become right And this is what it says Uh, That there's a righteousness, a rightness, a way of becoming right that comes from God, not from us. It's as though Martin Luther, his whole life, was trying to climb this religious ladder, trying to reach up to the top to gain righteousness for himself by human effort. And what this verse did is it showed him that God brings his righteousness down to us right where you are right in your life today, right with all the problems and all the doubts and all the fears and all the sin that you still have, God brings a rightness down to you as a free gift of grace. Now, Romans 3.21 explains this maybe a little bit better. So just flip maybe one page to the right and you'll see Romans 3.21. This is what it says, Romans 3.21. But now... The righteousness of God, that same phrase, has been manifested. That means it's been uh, come into plain sight. It's, be, it's been revealed apart from the law. Now, the law was the only way that Martin Luther knew of, of becoming right with God. It was this working way. It was this earning way. It was the climb the ladder way of, of becoming right, of undoing the wrong that you've done. But this is what this verse says, that now there's a new way that's been revealed, that's been made manifest, and it's apart from the law way, apart from the works way, apart from the earning way. It's the grace way, it's the gift way. And as we'll see, it's the faith way. You can see the same idea in Philippians 3. Uh, You don't have to turn there, but this is what it says. It's Paul speaking again, writing to the church in, in Philippi. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. This gift, this new knowledge that I have, it's so good, it's better than anything else I've ever experienced in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Listen to this. Not having a righteousness of my own. That comes from the law. But that righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. And as this verse says, this way of becoming righteous with God. It doesn't come by working. It doesn't come by earning. It doesn't come by obeying the law. It comes by faith. Or, or, or to put it better, a, a personal trust in God. Now, the word faith also is kind of a word that gets thrown around a lot these days. I think for most of us, faith, like righteousness, can have kind of a, a flimsy connotation. Like you think faith, for most people, especially outside the church, faith just kind of means superstition. And, and I think that's because people think of faith generally in these two wrong ways. And I've even heard preachers say this before. and I'm like, dude, you've got a Bible. You should know better. But generally... People think, when they hear the word faith, they think that the, uh, the opposite of faith is doubt. But like don't doubt. Don't unbelieve. Have faith. The opposite of faith is doubt. Or, the second wrong way that people think about faith, again, sorry if you have thought this, but this we're trying to see what the Bible says about faith. This, the second way that the Bible doesn't talk about faith is that um, faith is the opposite of thinking. So it's like, yeah, you believe in science, but I have faith. So I don't need to, like, think about things. (laughs) I mean, now, that's kind of a crude example, but that's what people outside think when we say we have faith. They go, yeah, faith is just superstition. Faith is just this kind of uh, firm, unwavering superstition in something that it does not make any sense and is not true. But when the Bible talks about faith, this is what the Bible says about faith. Faith is not the opposite of doubt. Faith is not the opposite of thinking. Faith is the opposite of working. Let me say that again because this is so important. Faith is the opposite of works. The way of faith is the opposite of the way of earning. It's the opposite of the way of achieving. It's the way of receiving from God what you cannot get on your own. Faith is a trusting and receiving from God. This is what it says in Romans 4, 4-5. through Now to the one who works, his wages aren't counted as a gift. They're his due. If you work for something... And i give you a paycheck. You don't say, Wow, I'm so grateful for that paycheck. You go, No! I earned that paycheck. You better give me a paycheck. That's my due. Right? There's no gratitude there. I mean, you might be grateful that they didn't fire you. If you work for it, and you get paid, you deserve it. But this is what it says in Romans 5. But to the one who does not work, but believes, faiths, the same word, The one who has faith, the one who believes in him who justifies the ungodly. That's a pregnant phrase. I wish that I could go into that. The one who justifies the ungodly, who righteousifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. This is what John Calvin says about faith. This is a beautiful picture. Faith is the open mouth of the hungry soul ready to receive grace from God. That's the posture of faith. The open mouth of the hungry soul saying, I can't, I can't do it myself. Bring it to me. God, give me what I need. Faith is not about achieving. It's about receiving. So this new right standing from God comes through Faith. But what are we having faith in? I mean, it's not a contentless faith. Uh, what are we trusting in? And we, and we read about it in, uh, in Philippians and in Romans 3. It's, we're, the thing that we're having faith in, the thing that we're believing and trusting in, is in Christ's perfect life, in His perfect death. In Christ's righteousness. Not in our righteousness. Look at, uh, back to Romans three twenty three through twenty five. This is what it says. Starting in twenty one, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, to be received by faith. So this new righteousness comes from outside of us. It comes from the man, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect, sinless, righteous life. And He did it so He could share it with you. He died a perfect, righteous death. As a sin offering. That's what it means when it says propitiation. He died to take away sin. For you. For me. For people who couldn't take our own sin away. And there's only one way to connect to the saving work of Jesus Christ. To connect to His righteousness. And that's by faith in Him by receiving His gracious, undeserved gift of love and His righteousness. And this new way of becoming right solely through trusting in Jesus' work is what theologians call justification by faith. We're counted righteous by what? Faith. And this is important, that we're justified, we're treated as righteous through faith alone. Faith only, or as it says in verse seventeen uh, for from faith for faith it, this is a message about faith that 's the, the from faith part, and it 's received by faith that 's the, the for faith of the two faith part. Uh, faith is the only way that you can connect to the righteousness of God now I, as an illustration, have you guys uh, recently Maybe you've upgraded cell phones or changed cell phones. or Maybe you downgraded your cell phone. But what happens, and this is the pesky thing when you change your cell phone, is that you can't just use any cord to connect and charge your phone up. I mean, it's, you have all these old cords from all the old phones that you've had, but the phone makers are really picky about what phone, what cord is going to connect. And God is really picky about what way that you can connect to the saving righteousness of Christ you can't use any old cord you can't use any old way the only connection that works is the connection by faith because that's what most clearly displays the saving power and glory and righteousness of God because if at any point it depended on us on our work who gets the glory? we do at least God gets a little less of the glory, right? But God's saying, no, it's all based on me. And also, I think, because God knows that we're going to stumble. He knows that you might not have strong faith. He knows that you're going to doubt. He knows that because He saved you when you were still a sinner, because He's justifying the ungodly, the wicked, That even though you've got this faith, you've still got a lot of stuff in your life that needs sorting out. And you might look at your life, you might look at your weak faith, and you might say, I, I just don't know if I'm really saved. But God's saying, listen, the faith way is about my power, it's not about your power. That's the way, it's from faith to faith. It's all about faith, so you can look back, and you don't have to trust in anything you do. You just trust in the promises Of God, He wants you to be absolutely rock solid sure that your hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood, Jesus' righteousness. You don't trust anything else. In that in that hymn, when it says, "I don't trust the sweetest frame," it's not like uh, the the hymn writer went to Hobby Lobby or Michaels and he was like looking at a a sweet picture frame. What he's saying (laughs) is, I don't a frame of mind. I'm not trusting in the sweetest emotion. I'm not trusting in the fact that when I come before God, I really feel sorry for my sin. I'm not trusting in the fact that I felt really engaged in a worship service for college students. This, this is for all of us, but I, I think especially for y'all. This is a huge temptation. To trust in how you feel. To know, oh, I, I know God really loves me because I really mean it when I pray to Him. And, and the Bible's saying, the hymn writers saying, don't don't trust in that stuff. That's just another way of working, that's another way of earning. Trust in Jesus power alone, not in the power of your emotion, not in the power of your working. So the question I have for you is is what about you? What are you using to make your life right? What are you using to to justify yourself, to make your life count, to make you feel good? I mean, all of us, we have this sense that something's wrong. And for for most of us, even for us inside the church, we think, if this person likes me, if this thing at work goes well, if I can just get this next possession, or if I can have a certain amount of money in my bank account, or if I finally can retire then my life will be right. And what the Bible is saying is don't trust in that. Those are the old ways of connecting to God. You throw those all away and you receive by faith the one way that God has provided through the righteousness of Jesus Christ counted to you by faith. So... Let's look together just at this final point. We've seen God's power, we've seen it's about Christ's righteousness and finally, just to wrap it up, let's look back at verse 16, back up to the top and let's see how this message of the gospel empowers Paul's boldness. Right at the very beginning of Romans 1:16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. This message that I've shared to you about this free righteousness that comes from heaven, that's bounding down from heaven to sinners who are helpless. I'm not ashamed of it. In fact, I'm going to tell it to everyone that I meet. That's what he means when he says he's not ashamed. He's not trying to cover it up. He's not trying to hide it. He's trying to broadcast it. He's going to find the tallest mountain he can and the biggest megaphone, and he's going to shout it out to as many people who will hear him as possible. And the question we need to ask is, well, what is it that's making Paul so bold and so confident and so proud of this message? Now, maybe you already know. I, I think he's bold, first of all, because he knows that this gospel that I've told you about is the best possible solution to the needs of every human being. Paul knows, and you know, don't you, that no other way works. Nothing else brings life. Every other way of trying to make yourself right it just brings death. And the Bible's clear that every single person is under the power of sin. And every single person will one day have to stand before the judgment seat of God. And these are our two biggest problems. Everyone has this problem. We're stuck with sin and we know God's going to judge sin. But when we put our faith in Christ, the power of sin to condemn us, and the penalty of sin that brings death, they're both taken away. So Paul's going to tell as many people as he can because he knows the power is deep and it takes care of all of our needs. And next, Paul is bold because he knows just how wide and free God's gift of forgiveness is. Who's this salvation for? It says in the text, in verse 16, for Jews, for Greeks, which is a way of saying, anybody. Everyone who believes, any kind of person. There's not a religious type. There's not a Christian type. Romans, the church in Rome, they didn't. Most of them were not Jewish by birth. They didn't know about the God of the Bible. And so Paul's saying, "Listen, if you think that, you, that this doesn't apply to you, that this isn't being offered to you, that this can't help you, that this can't solve your problem, that God wasn't thinking of you when Christ died on the cross, you got you better think again." Because there's no religious type. It's for Jew and for Greek. And as we know, for European people, for African people, for Asian people, for every type of person under the sun. The Gospel says, the Bible says in Revelation that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, at the end of time we're going to see them before the throne of God, worshiping Him, speaking His praises. And the way the Gospel works is so beautiful that not one person who puts their trust in Christ lacks this perfect righteousness. doesn't matter what your background is. Not one person who puts their trust in Christ who believes lacks the righteousness from God. He's got that much to give away. He'll never run out. You're never going to come to Christ for forgiveness. And he's like, ah, doors closed, we ran out. You know? There's always more. There's been more for 2,000 years. For all the sins of all of His sheep, past, present, future. There's enough for you. Christ Himself said in John six thirty seven, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I'm never going to say I don't have forgiveness for you. If you come to me, You repent, you believe, you trust. Forgiveness full and free is what I have for you. But Paul was also bold because he knows that this message is urgent. It's deep, it's wide, it's free, but it's also urgent. And I think this week especially, I've been reminded of this. That we don't have the time to waste... Considering this, that when we think what we might have. That eternity for some of us is just um, one day away. And what the Bible says is clear not one true believer in Christ lacks righteousness with God, but not one unbeliever, not one unbeliever has it. Not one person who comes to Christ for forgiveness will be cast out. But if you never come to him, you're never going to receive it. And which is why Paul says, I have to tell people, I can't afford to be ashamed for their sake. He will not be silent. And I think neither can we. We have to speak up about this. We have to speak up about the evil of sin and the darkness of life apart from God, of the goodness and freedom and glory of the gift of righteousness, this righteousness that comes from God. So finally, Paul is not ashamed because he 's confident in the power and the promises of God. This is what he says in First Timothy. I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the gospel, first Timothy eleven and twelve that 's why I suffer as I do, but you know what i 'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced, listen to this, that He is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. God's power works to save sinners. God's power works when you receive the gospel and God's power works when you deliver the gospel. God's able to guard what He's entrusted to us. So you don't have to be fearful about sharing this message. But are we? I mean, are you ashamed of the gospel? I, I think if we're honest, we probably every Christian's been ashamed of the gospel at some point. It's terribly inconvenient to believe in the gospel a lot of times out in the world when you can't live like everyone else lives. When people look at you and they hear that you go to church and they hear you're a Christian they just automatically assume before you can even explain yourself that that you're homophobic, that you're racist, and they just say, oh, that's exactly who you are. I know, because all Christians are like that. That's what people think about us. So it's easy to be ashamed. The Romans... The Roman church, they had every reason to be ashamed. They lived in the center of the greatest empire the world has ever seen. It was no different for them. They were misunderstood too. Because of their religion, they were mocked. They were excluded from the halls of power. The laws never went in their favor. Political candidates never delivered on their promises to them. Sound familiar? They were driven from their homes. They were burned at the stake. They were fed to wild beasts for public entertainment. And yet, those arenas where they used to kill our brothers and sisters, do you know what they are now? They're gravel. You go to Rome. You see the places where they killed Christians. Guess what? It's a tourist attraction. That's how quickly the mighty fall And guess what? What's the gospel doing 2,000 years later? It's transforming the world. The Roman Empire crumbled like sand. But the kingdom of God is advancing and moving and it will never, ever stop until the day that Jesus comes back. Amen? Amen. There is no power on earth. There is no person that's stronger than than the person of Jesus Christ as revealed in this Bible. So we might have a couple things to be ashamed for, but we can be bold. We can be confident that we do stand on the right side of history. And when history is history, we're going to look back and we're going to see God's hand moving. What makes the gospel so good? Why is Paul so excited? He knows it can save. He knows it will save anybody who believes in it. And so I think what Paul's saying to the Roman church, what he's saying to us is we've got to speak up. We can't be ashamed of it. If there's someone that God has laid on your heart a friend from work a neighbor or, or, or someone that you need to have a conversation with about the gospel where they, where they asked you about your involvement in church or they asked you about your life and you just kind of hemmed and hawed and you said well yeah I go to a church and yeah here, I have a Bible you know don't be ashamed for their sake if you really love them if you really want to do the polite thing tell them how they can find life. Tell them how they can be redeemed. Tell them how they can be made right. Tell them how they can be healed. Please, tell them. Speak up. Their life depends upon it. And when you've been gripped by this message about the power of God, the righteousness of Christ that's given to us, you'll have the boldness to speak it. We'll have the boldness to share it and not be ashamed. May it be so. Let's pray. Almighty God, you've given us the gift of your word. You've given us this time to look into these deep and mighty ideas to see your plan of redemption and your way of making wrong people right. Thank you for the perfect life of Jesus Christ, for his righteous life that covers our unrighteous life, for his perfect death that pays the price we couldn't pay to redeem us from sin, for his powerful and mighty resurrection, for for his reign at your right hand. Lord, would you use these words to call and convict and transform us. Lord, give us a boldness to speak the word of God with confidence in the middle of a dull and a dying world. Call all your children home to yourself. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Let's stand and sing our...